We are in chapter 40 of Isaiah. This is a new section. This is the second half of the book of Isaiah. The first half, talked about this last week, but I'll do a little review. The first half of the book is Isaiah talking about the coming Babylonians, specifically focusing on that, obviously judging Judah for their sins of idolatry and social injustice, and then basically talking about how he was going to purify the old Jerusalem, the sinful Jerusalem, which he called the ruined Jerusalem. And that name will pop back up again as we go through this. And then towards the very end, the Babylonians come. They actually take um, them into exile. So now we are moving to the second half. So the second half is Israel is now in exile and Judah is now in exile. And all of Israel and Judah is now um, gone. And so Isaiah is speaking as if he is in exile, and he's talking to the future people who are going to be restored. So the whole context now is people being restored back to the land. Now, we've already developed that a lot in Isaiah. Well, Isaiah's already developed that, and the prophets already developed that. But we're going to go even further now. So chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and tell her that her time of warfare is over, that her punishment is completed, for Yahweh has made her pay double for her sins. A voice cries out. So, basically he says, listen, the exile's about ready to come to an end. This is what he's anticipating. And what he's saying is, comfort, comfort, I have a message of hope for you, because you have paid for your sins. And you have now been justly judged. And now there's a day that is coming that you're going to be restored. Basically, a day is coming that you're coming out of timeout. You're coming in time, out of timeout. You're, you've been grounded, and one week is almost up. And you're ready to come back and get your car keys, so to speak. A voice cries out in the wilderness, clear a way for Yahweh, construct in the desert a road for our God. Every valley must be elevated, and every mountain and hill leveled. Then the rough terrain will become a level plain, the rugged landscape a wide valley. The splendor of Yahweh will be revealed, and all the people will see at at the same time. For Yahweh has decreed it. A voice says, cry out. Another asks, what should I cry? The first voice responds, all the people are like grass, and all their promises are like flowers in the field. The grass dries up and the flowers wither, and when the wind sent by God, Yahweh blows on them, surely humanity is like grass, and the grass dries up and the flowers wither. But the decree of our God is forever reliable. Now this is powerful. This is the passage that is used by the Gospels refers to John the Baptizer. And when John the Baptizer comes on the scene, he is the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing a way. He's preparing the way for Jesus. Now, in this context, now, now you have a little bit of typology prophecy going on here. In this context, the idea is that they're in exile and they're in Babylon. And God is saying, a voice is crying out in the wilderness. Come, come out of exile. It's time to return to Yahweh. Now, it's in the wilderness because remember, the prophets, Yahweh has already spoken in previous prophets that I will woo you out of your exile and I will bring you back to the wilderness and there I will be your God and you will be my people and I will be like a husband to you and I will take care of you in the wilderness like I did in the days of Egypt. 
Now, we don't often think of the wilderness as a good place to be, a place of blessing. But remember, the wilderness most of the time is a context of um, trials, um, testings. And so Jesus is not sent to the wilderness because he's being punished. He's sent to the wilderness to go through a trial and a testing. And he actually passed the test because he spends that time with God the entire time. And it's a place where you're trusting in God rather than circumstances. And so basically, it's, it's your first date kind of an idea. It's that God's saying, I'm taking you back to where we were first met each other, where I first called you to be my people. It's the equivalent of saying, you're, you're shipwrecked on a desert island, there's nothing around, and it's just you and your spouse, and you're like, hey baby, we don't need a whole lot of resources as long as we're together. That kind of an idea. Or you're like in this rundown kind of a money pit house that has no like real good things to it. And you're like, as long as we're together, that's all that matters. And that's what God is saying the wilderness is. The wilderness is a place where he strips everything materialistically from you so that you'll realize that all there really is is you and God, and that's all that matters. And that's all that matters. So that's why he's saying a voice is crying out the wilderness. It's calling you to the wilderness because the wilderness is a great place because that's where you realize all you need is God. And he can take care of all your needs. Water from rocks, manna falling, coming on the ground, quail flying through the sky. He can take care of battling the Amalekites with just lifting your arms up. He can take care of all your needs. So the wilderness ceases to be a wilderness. And so he's calling them back to their first date location, so to speak, where they really knew God. And he says, level all the mountains, bring the mountains down and the valleys up so that there's a highway that is flat and it's very easy to walk. There's going to be no obstacles this time. There's going to be no hindrances. It's going to be a straight, level path back to the promised land. And then he says, all humans are like grass, meaning that people who make promises to you sometimes die before they can fulfill the promises. The people who make promises to you are flawed sometimes, and they don't keep their promises. And people and their promises wither away like grass. They rise up, and they fall away quickly, and there's nothing left. But the decrees of Yahweh last forever. When God makes promises, they last forever. And when God makes promises, he's around forever to make sure that that promise actually gets fulfilled. And that's what he's saying. God has made a promise, and he's going to fulfill it, and that time has come. What's interesting, though, this is talking about them coming out of exile, and that literally physically happened under Cyrus II in 539 B.C. However, it's going to be used of John the baptizer, and John the baptizer is the voice crying out in the wilderness. And you're like, wait a minute, they're already in the promised land when John the baptizer comes. But the idea is, are they truly out of exile? No, they're out of exile physically, but they're not out of exile because Rome still occupies them and rules over them. And there is still sin in the world, and they still don't have their freedom. And so in typological sense, the gospel writers say, hey, just like back then, this passage referred to them coming out of a physical Babylon, out of a physical exile. So now today, John the baptizer is the voice in the wilderness, calling them out of their spiritual exile. And the highway that he's preparing is for Jesus Christ to die on the cross for their sins. 
Now, even then, that doesn't bring us completely out of exile because we're still living in this fallen, sinful world where things are broken. We're spiritually free, and we're in our homes physically, but the world is not completely made right and redeemed fully yet. And so there's a sense where we're yet looking forward to another typological fulfillment where a voice is going to cry out in the wilderness, but this time it's going to be for the kingdom of God to literally come and set up itself on earth. So you see how that typology works? It's not predicting a future of Jesus. It's predicting the fulfillment of the exile coming over. But the gospel writers say, hey, it's just like Jesus and the cross, spiritually exile is over. Hey, it's just like the second coming of Jesus Christ when literal political dominion of pagan empires is going to be brought to an end and Christ is going to rule on the earth. And so this is the typology, how it gets used over and over and over again. Verse 9, Go up on a high mountain, O herald Zion. Shout out loudly, O herald Jerusalem. Shout, don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. Look, the sovereign Yahweh comes as a victorious warrior. His military power establishes rule. Look, his reward is with him. His prizes goes before him. Like a shepherd, he tends his flock. He gathers up all the lambs with his arm, and he carries them close to his heart. He leads the ooze along. Once again, this talks about a military leader who comes in and conquers the enemy and then gathers his lambs to him. And this is first and second coming all crammed together in the same passage. And so once again, this is why the Jews thought that the first and second coming were going to be all at one time. Verse 12. Who has measured out the waters in the hollow of his hand, or carefully measured the sky, or carefully weighed the soil, the earth, or weighed the mountains in the balance, or the hills on the scale? Now this gives you a picture of God being this cosmic being, that he can hold all the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand and measure it out. Who comprehends the mind of Yahweh, or gives him instruction as he, his counselor? From whom does he receive directions, who teaches him the correct way to do things, or imparts knowledge to him, or instructs him in skillful design. Look, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He lifts the coastlands as if they were dust. Not even Lebanon can supply enough firewood for a sacrifice. Its wild animals cannot provide enough burnt offerings. All the nations are insignificant before him. They are regarded as absolutely nothing. To whom can you compare God? To what image can you liken him? So basically, the narrator starts off by saying, God is this cosmic being. that There is nothing in all of the universe as unique or as anything compares to him. And he's beyond everything in his ability to do things. He's beyond all in his ability to know things. And this is basically where you're going to get really good passages other than the Psalms on the omnipotence, on the omniscience, on all that stuff of who Yahweh is and what he's like. And then he says, who can you compare him to? This is the holiness of God, absolutely unique and unlike anything else. Now, why is this so important? Because we trust in other things than Yahweh. We trust in other things. We trust in our governments. We trust in our own abilities and skills. We trust in our, our 401ks. We trust in our banking accounts. And for them specifically, trust in literal idols and literal gods. 
He said, a craftsman casts an idol, a metalsmith overlays it with gold and forges silver chains for it. To make a contribution, one selects wood that will not rot. He then seeks a skilled craftsman to make an idol that will not fall over. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you since the very beginning? Have you not understood from the time the earth's foundations were made? He is the one who sits on the earth's horizon. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before him. He is the one who stretches out the sky like a thin curtain and spreads it out like a pinched tent. He is the one who reduces rulers to nothing and makes the earth's leaders insignificant. Indeed, they are barely planted. Yes, they are barely sown. Yes, they are barely take root on the earth. And then he blows on them, causing them to dry up, and the wind carries them like straw. To whom can you compare me? Whom do I resemble? Says the Holy One. Look up at the sky, who created all these heavenly lights. He is the one who leads out their ranks. He calls them all by name. Because of his absolute power and awesome strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel? Yahweh is not aware of what is happening to me. My God is not concerned with my vindication. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is an eternal God, the creator of the whole earth. He does not get tired or weary. There is no limit to his wisdom. He gives strength to those who are tired and the ones who lack power. He gives renewed energy. Even youths get tired and weary. Even strong young men clumsily stumble. But those who wait in Yahweh's help find renewed strength. They rise up as if they had eagle's wings, and they run without growing weary, and they walk without getting tired. So basically he's saying, you build your gods. And later in Isaiah, he's going to talk about how you can build a god out of the wood, and with the same piece of wood, you cook your fire, and you cook your meals with it. And then you carry your idols with you. Now remember, God is not saying that the other gods are not real. He's made that very clear by using the word Elohim and all that kind of stuff. And we know that angels exist, and they're divine beings. And we know that there's demons behind these beings. What he's saying is, that you honestly think you can create homes for these gods. In the ancient world, this is called animism. And animism is when they believe that the spirits of beings lived inside of physical objects, kind of like the spirit of us lives in our physical body, except not exactly, but that's an analogy. Or how Zeus lives in the body of the planet Jupiter. And so it's not that they believe that these idols are real gods, is they believe that the spirit of the gods enters the idol, and then that they have that present in them. So the idea that God is saying, though, is, but that's pathetic. That's pathetic. It's not that gods don't exist. It's that you can literally contain your God in this wooden thing. I am not containable. There's nothing that can contain me. There's, there's nothing that will allow you. There's nothing containing me. Not even all the heavens can. I am everywhere, and I see all things. And that's the point that he's making. It's not that these gods don't exist. A lot of people misunderstand Isaiah's passages as if idols are not real. What his point is that they're pathetic compared to who he is. And how in the world, why would you want to worship a god that can be contained in a totem pole when you can worship a god that is not contained in even the entire universe? He's outside of it. And then the point that he's making is this. I will give you hope. Now, this passage of, do you not know, have you not heard, is a very famous passage. At least when I was growing up in the 80s, it was like, I think every youth room had a poster with this passage on it. 
Okay, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the context is specifically a people who've been judged and they're no longer in the land of God. And God is promising them that no matter how tired and weary you are from life and its judgments and oppressions, I will fulfill my promises by bringing you out. I will honor my promise because I will give power to the weakest of people and I will make your past straights. And so, yes, this does apply to us today because I'm going to, I have and I will continue to make the argument that the true Israelite are those by faith. And that the point that, would, and then Paul is really going to make that point in Romans, that there is no Jew or Gentile anymore, man or woman, free man or slave. There's only those who are in Christ. That's the true Israelite. So in many ways, these do apply to us. But at the same time, the original context makes it clear that this is not just any passage that you can read for any moment of comfort. This is a passage that you read that God will take care of you in the midst of what he's promised. Okay, That God will enable you to have the strength to stay committed to him so you can receive the things that he has promised. And that's the specific context. So, if the gospel writers have made it clear that this typology is pointing to the end of their physical exile, and God is promising that he will give them the strength to walk and not stumble out of their exile back into the promised land where they will be with God again, then that typology would apply to our exile, which is this place and the kingdom of God coming to earth. And so loosely you can apply it to a lot of things, but specifically I would say this is the idea that when you read the Second Testament and the, the, the gospel writers and specifically the epistles like Peter and Paul say that the true mark of a believer is perseverance and running the race and finishing it and make it to the end. And so if we want to correctly apply this passage, this isn't just like God will give you the strength to like do your ministry, though he will, and I'm not saying he won't, it's just if you want to apply this passage more correctly, it's that he will give you the strength to finish the race to what he has promised you in the second coming of Jesus Christ, the end of our exile. And that's what he's promising that's what he's promising them. Even young men and older people stumble and don't have the energy to run the race. But those who trust in him, he will give you the ability to persevere until he makes his salvation complete. And even when you get to the gospel writers and the epistles, they don't talk about God just giving you the ability to handle little tasks. They're mostly looking at the long term, the long term of what we are ultimately going towards. And that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. He says, But those who wait for Yahweh's help find renewed strength, and they rise as if they had eagle wings. The image here is that he will lift them up on eagle's wings. I think we've... The, God has used that imagery in the past, and so I think I've talked about this. But a mother bird basically flies in the air, and she puts her young on her wings. Then she basically drops her wings as she flies, and the birds drop to the ground. And if they don't learn how to fly, then it swoops down and picks them back up. And it keeps doing this over and over again until the young learn how to fly. 
and the idea is that Yahweh lifts us up on his wings. And the implication is, in the greater context of Scripture, we will never be able to fly. Okay, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are not capable of persevering until the end without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit. And so the idea is that he lifts us up on his wings and he keeps us going. And that's what he's promised. Okay, these are refugees in exile who've been beaten down. Their families have been slaughtered. They've been judged by God. And he's promising, I'm going to give your worn out bodies, your minds and your emotions and spirits the strength to return back to the promised land where I'll take care of you again because I'm going to lift you up on wings and bring you home and bring you home. And that's the context. The context is I will bring you home like I promised I would. So then Yahweh challenges the nations. In chapter 41 and the rest of the chapter, he challenges the nations and basically says, you can't stop me and you can't undo the things that I have promised and I will bring my people back. So that brings us to chapter 42. You may have heard this before, but there are several what's called servant songs throughout the book of Isaiah. And there's about five specifically, but there's probably more than that. But there's only usually five official servant songs because the guy who first identified these really only found five. But we now know there are actually more than that. So this is the first of servant songs. And these are verses 1 through 7. In chapter 42. And what the servant songs are this. The servant songs are God has called a specific servant in Israel that he's going to give the power to basically do what Israel can never do. And on the surface, it really looks like the servant is Israel. And that he's going to give Israel is his servant. And he's going to give the servant Israel the power to do what they've never been able to do before. And that's basically lead the people of Israel and be obedient and faithful to God. The problem with this is, is that when you read this, it doesn't say that. It uses the pronouns he a lot. And it really makes a distinction between Israel and the servant. And so there are several of these. So we're going to see these as we read. And you see this distinction between he will lead my people and he will guide them and they will follow him. And it, that makes it very clear that Israel and the servant are completely distinct from each other. And that's important to mention because you might think like, okay, that was kind of obvious as I'm reading it. But it's important to mention because the Israelites today who actually read the Bible believe that the servant here is Israel and that they're the servant and that God is going to give them the power to do that. The, and that's why they miss a lot of this messianic passages here. The problem is that's not how the grammar is reading. That's not how the grammar is reading. But later when we keep going on too, um, it's very clear that this is a descent of David. This is the Davidic David. So what's interesting about these is every single time we've read a passage about the Messiah is all this military language of dominance and power and all that kind of stuff. But the servant songs get the closest to this leader actually serving the people. And ultimately, the servant songs climax in Isaiah 53, which is a very famous passage about the crucifixion. And so this is the closest we get 
to the Davidic servant actually suffering, actually suffering, that we're going to get anywhere really in the Bible, um, prophesying the Messiah. Now, some people also believe that this is Cyrus II, who is the Persian king who let them return. The problem with that is because Cyrus II is also called God's servant, and he's going to do what God wants. The problem is that Cyrus II, in this his servant songs, is portrayed mostly as a violent warrior who just massacres everybody, but God uses him to do his will despite that. Where these servant songs make it very clear that he is a shepherd who obediently does the will of God and righteously executes the will of God, not just some random king who is being used by God to do his will, whether he likes it or not, kind of an idea. This makes it clear. And so as we go through the servant songs, we'll develop what this figure is like. So chapter 42, verse 1. Here's my servant whom I support, my chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I have placed my spirit on him, and he will make just decrees for the nations. Now remember, placing my spirit on him is anointing language. He is my anointed one. And very few people got anointed in Israel. He will not cry out or shout. He will not publicize himself in the streets. A crushed reed he will not break. A dim wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully make just decrees, and he will not grow dim or be crushed before establishing justice on earth. The coastlands will wait in anticipation for his decrees. Now, the way that he's portrayed is a gentle king. He will hold reeds, and he will, they will not crush in his hands. Reeds are easily broken. And they will, he will, they will not break in his hand. He will hold a candle and he will not put out the wick. Okay, his breath will be gentle. His words will be gentle. And the idea is that his hands and his embrace and his words are very gentle. On the flip side, do not think that he's weak. Because he will not be crushed. And he will not be put out either. And so he is a solid, stable king, but he's also a gentle king. And he will faithfully establish all the decrees of God on earth. This is what the true God, the Yahweh, says. The one who created the sky and stretched it out. The one who fashioned the earth, everything that lives on it. The one who gives breath to the people on it and life to those who live on it. I, Yahweh, officially commission you. I take hold of your hand. I protect you and make you a covenant mediator for my people, a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to release prisoners from dungeons, those who live in darkness from prisons. And so God is basically saying, I'm going to use you, you strong, stable, confident king, who is also gentle and kind. I'm going to use you to establish my covenant, and you're going to mediate my covenant. Now, this is prophetic language. It is the prophets and the priests that mediate covenants. And so the idea is that he's going to have a prophet-like office to him as well. And then he's going to set people free. He's going to set people from their bondage to open the eyes of the blind and set prisoners free from dungeons and those who live in darkness from their prisons. And so he's going to be a just king who does not wrongly imprison people, but actually frees them, but actually frees them. I am Yahweh, verse 8. That is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else or pray, or the praise do me with idols. Look, 
My earlier predictive oracles have come to pass. Now I announce new events before they begin to occur. I reveal them to you. Sing to Yahweh a brand new song. Praise Him for the horizon the earth. You go down to the sea and everything that lives in it, the coastlands and those who live there. Let the desert and its cities shout out. The towns where the nomads of Kedar live. Let the residents of Silas shout joyfully. Let them shout loudly from the mountaintops. So he says, look, I will not share my glory with false idols. I have fulfilled everything I said I would fulfill. And now I speak new decrees. And you know I'm going to fulfill those decrees because I fulfilled the ones I spoke in the past. My reputation is good. Let them give Yahweh the honor he deserves. Let them praise his deeds in the coastlands. Your gods promise to protect you. And the nations crushed you. I promised I would punish you. And you were punished. And now I promise I'll deliver you. And that will happen. I make old and new decrees. And I honor them all with my promises. And so God is basically saying, I'm going to lift up this servant. And I'm going to use him to fulfill my old promises. And then I'm going to use him to make new promises and you know they'll happen because I have a good and faithful reputation. Yahweh goes on, and he basically reasons with his people, follow me, trust in me. And he gives more reasons. He basically repeats the same reasons over and over again. My character, my promises, my reputation, all that kind of stuff. And he promises to take care of them. He promises to fulfill them. He calls them back to him in faithful devotion because of his reputation in comparison to their reputation. 